This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical malpractice, elder abuse, drug addiction, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Survival instinct is a powerful force. A rush of fight-or-flight adrenaline sends hearts racing, blood pumping, and behavior well off the charts of normal. Caught in traps, animals will chew off their own limbs. In life-or-death situations, people can develop superhuman strength, lifting cars with their bare hands. When threatened by an attacker, some even kill to survive. Of course, these are extreme circumstances. But for Amy Archer Gilligan, even mild threats triggered her survival instinct. When financial woes and small-town gossip threatened her nursing home, Amy's adrenaline surged. To keep her business alive, she began poisoning her own patients. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm thrilled to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Amy Archer Gilligan. 
a charlatan who once falsely claimed to have trained as a nurse at the Bellevue Hospital in her mission to care for the elderly. Ironically, she would have actually saved so many lives if instead she'd spent her life locked away in this hospital as a patient. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Amy Archer Gilligan, one of America's first nursing home directors. In the early 1900s, she poisoned as many as 64 of her residents. Last time, we explored how Amy escaped her troubled youth by lying about her past and opening her nursing home in Windsor, Connecticut. We also tracked her growing financial struggle and the peculiar pattern of deaths in its wake. This time, we'll see how Amy's plot sparked an investigation spanning several years, all as the unsuspecting patients of Archer Home continued to die. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. In 1914, Amy Archer Gilligan squirmed beneath the burdens of her dark past. Five years prior, one of the residents of her nursing home had hit her with a lawsuit that eventually cost the business $5,000, more than the building had cost in the first place. Desperate to recover both her finances and her reputation, it's suspected that Amy killed her own husband and passed it off as kidney disease, only to cash in on his life insurance. But despite the potential payout and the public sympathy, Amy still thought she needed more money. So she resumed a familiar scheme. Each newcomer to the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids paid either a weekly fee of $7 to $10 or a flat fee of $1,000 to cover care for the rest of their lives. Since the flat fee was enough to support a person for about two years, Amy's clients thought they were getting a good deal. They figured they'd live far longer than that. Sadly, they rarely did. Once she'd killed them, Amy had her local doctor declare a cause of death, which was, of course, never poisoning. Amy then pocketed their lifetime care deposit and cleared their room for a new paying customer. For some five years, Amy got away with it. She even remarried in the process to her hired handyman. Her second husband, 57-year-old Michael Gilligan, had nearly $5,000 to his name. It's likely Amy married him with the intent of securing the rest of the fortune, and by February 1914, she felt it was time to cash in her marriage. She had Michael sign over his assets to her in the event of his death. Just over a day later, Michael woke with stomach pain and a burning in his throat. By the next morning, he was dead. As always, Amy called her regular physician, Dr. King. Dr. King was shocked. Michael had complained of mild stomach pain the previous night, but his condition hadn't appeared lethal. 
With little to go on, Dr. King attributed the death to valvular heart disease, even though he had never treated Michael for that illness before. Michael Gilligan's complaints don't quite match up with valvular heart disease, which typically presents with symptoms like shortness of breath, fatigue, dizziness, and chest pain. On the other hand, the stomach and heart actually share the same network of nerves, so sometimes pain in the gut could be related to cardiovascular conditions like coronary artery disease, an aortic aneurysm, or a heart attack. Given the combination of Michael's gastric pain and the burning in his throat, it's easy to assume that Dr. King's first guess would point to something toxic in the stomach. Swallowing a poison can certainly create pain and harm in the stomach and throat, so it would have been a logical jumping-off point. Ultimately, Alistair, I think the diagnosis Dr. King landed on was odd and off-base. The theory certainly made its way through the gossip at the Archer home. 60-year-old Franklin Andrews even wrote a letter to his brother about the matter. In it, he explained that the nursing home director's husband had died very sudden and a funeral was held soon after. But that wasn't all. Franklin had kept a tally of those who died since he moved into the home. Michael's death made 21 in the last 18 months alone. Local reporter Carlin Gosley was also baffled by the fatality rate. He'd watched Amy hawkishly for almost three years now, keeping relatively quiet about his suspicions. But Michael Gilligan's death sent him into action. Carlin took his research to his editor at the Hartford Courant, including records of Amy's arsenic purchases and eerie similarities between Archer home deaths. As the two pored over the clues, they made a disturbing finding. Since January 1911, at least 40 people had died. That's an average of more than 11 deaths a year in a home that housed just 20 residents at any given time. It seemed like more than just a tragic coincidence. Eager to pursue the lead, the Hartford Courant brought in a few more full-time reporters to start digging. Together, they'd build a case they could bring to law enforcement. It seems Amy understood how closely her business was being tracked and grew paranoid. Her fears were only worsened by her growing addiction to morphine. According to Amy's teenage daughter, Mary, Amy was always concerned that others were watching her. She'd look out the windows with fear and ask about neighbors. On one occasion, Mary found her mother passed out from drugs. When she tried to wake her, Amy didn't respond. Terrified, Mary tried again. Amy opened her eyes wide, yelling, It's you! 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 Her expression was vacant. Amy had no idea she was looking at her own daughter. Mary had reached her final straw. She approached Dr. King and allegedly asked him to help her mother quit the drug. Apparently, Dr. King responded by writing Amy a prescription that would limit her morphine intake. 
Even though it may seem counterintuitive, prescribing an addict the very drug they're addicted to by slowly tapering their dosing can be safer and more effective than forcing them to quit cold turkey. Strategic prescribing of addictive substances can, over time, reduce and end dependency on those drugs. This is a common method that's still used today in some treatment programs, but I believe it prolongs a treatment that has far better and safer alternatives. The problem with the tapering option, however, is that it requires a high degree of patient compliance and monitoring. An addict would have to be really motivated to get clean for this setup to work. Unfortunately, Dr. King's efforts were in vain. Morphine was not a heavily controlled substance prior to December 1914, so even as Dr. King worked with Amy to limit her intake, she was still able to buy the opiate without difficulty from her local drugstore, and she completely ignored Dr. King's recommendations. By mid-1914, she'd purchased as many as 20,000 morphine tablets over three years. The addiction was serious and expensive. To make matters worse, the money Amy had expected to pocket from Michael Gilligan's death was delayed. A temporary hold on the estate allowed creditors and anyone else Michael may have owed to claim their share. Amy was less than thrilled. She couldn't afford to wait. So, April 1914 saw even more deaths at the Archer home. One was an elderly woman whose passing struck Franklin Andrews particularly hard. He wrote that things did not seem quite the same afterwards. Just a few days later, a second resident fell ill, 87-year-old Charles Smith, another friend of Franklin's. The two had entered the Archer home around the same time. Charles was a physically able and healthy man for most of his year and a half of care. But that April, he began to display the symptoms that preceded nearly every death at the Archer home. For a day or two, he complained of stomach pain. When his sister Emily visited, she found him drooling, saying things that were barely comprehensible. On April 10th, 1914, Charles Smith died, allegedly of a stroke. It's possible that the specifics of Charles' rapid decline over several days pretended a deadly stroke, but it's very unlikely based on the information we have. In theory, his stomach pain could have hinted at an impending stroke, but this is a rare symptom to experience as a prodrome, especially days before the actual event. Symptoms that typically present days prior to a stroke normally arise due to hypertension or a severely elevated blood pressure. These include things like shortness of breath, dizziness, headaches, impaired vision, and even cognitive difficulties. Dangerous strokes can also be preceded by mini-strokes, known as TIAs, which usually affect one side of the body, can cause temporary aphasia, confusion, and numbness in the face, arms, or legs. Given all of the ambiguity surrounding his death, we can't know for sure if Charles was killed by a stroke. However Charles died, there's something to be said for the fact that he was the second resident to die in two weeks. 
and Amy's motive was clear as she quietly pocketed the money that would have gone toward Charles's lifetime of care. She now had enough cash to help her business stay afloat as she awaited the payout from her dead husband's will. Unfortunately, that wasn't coming in any time soon. When Amy followed up with a judge in May of 1914, she received bad news. Michael Gilligan's grown children were unhappy at having been cut out of his will just days before his death. Execution of the will was delayed again. So, in May 1914, Amy was eager to meet 71-year-old Alice Gowdy and her husband, Lauren. The couple had been married for over 20 years. Now, they wanted a place to settle down for the rest of their days. The Archer home seemed just the place. During their grand tour, Amy brought them upstairs to one particularly appealing room. Alice and Lauren Gowdy were impressed, but confused. A resident stuff was still piled all around. Obviously, they couldn't move in. It was occupied. But Amy didn't seem concerned. She told them, This will be vacant very soon. Coming up, Amy sets out to claim her next victim. Hi, it's Alastair, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the popular cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 45-year-old Amy Archer Gilligan was desperate for cash. A combination of a lawsuit and a morphine addiction had left her low on funds, but she knew making money was as simple as taking in new patients at her Connecticut nursing home. She had two prospective new residents lined up already, 
Lauren and Alice Gowdy. The only trouble was, the Archer home had no open rooms for them to move into. Still, on May 26, 1914, Amy asked the Gowdies for an advance on their lifetime payment, $1,000 for the two of them, half the normal rate. Amy was clearly at the end of her rope, but when they asked, she couldn't supply the Gowdies a clear move-in date because Franklin Andrews was still living in the room she'd promised them. Though relatively young and healthy, Franklin was also the latest resident to grow suspicious of Amy, so he may not have been shocked by what happened next. <coughs> On the morning of Saturday, May 30th, 1914, Franklin Andrews woke in distress, vomiting, clutching his stomach. He was in rough shape. Still, when a fellow resident asked Amy to get medical help, she stalled. A long 14 hours later, Dr. King finally arrived. He examined Franklin and concluded there wasn't much he could do. He wrote Franklin's pain off as acute indigestion and prescribed medicine for nausea. Then, he gave Amy detailed instructions for administering it, two tablets an hour until Franklin felt better. Amy assured Dr. King she'd follow his orders and sent him home. But within the hour, Amy summoned the doctor once again. When he arrived, this time at 9.05 p.m., he was baffled to discover that Franklin Andrews was unresponsive. There was nothing Dr. King could do for him. An hour later, the doctor declared Franklin Andrews dead. If Amy dosed Franklin with more arsenic while Dr. King was away, it definitely could have accelerated his demise. Franklin had been experiencing the classic symptoms of acute arsenic poisoning, and in all likelihood, he'd already ingested a lethal amount prior to Dr. King's first visit. Another dose would have exacerbated his dire condition, and the timing of this makes sense because arsenic can start wreaking havoc in the system in as little as 30 minutes. The additional administration could have quickly decimated Franklin's ATP production, ultimately sending him into shock from a severe drop in his blood pressure. This would have then ultimately led to organ failure and death. On the flip side, it's possible that Franklin passed from Amy's lack of medical intervention even without the additional dose of poison. That same night, Amy called Franklin's sister, Nellie Pierce. She said Franklin was ill with boils on his neck and that he was unlikely to get well. Worried, Nellie offered to head over that instant. But Amy pushed back. She told Nellie her presence wouldn't be necessary, perhaps implying that Franklin would still be alive the following day. But when Nellie arrived at the home the next morning, that was not the case. Franklin's body had already been hauled away. Strangely, Nellie learned his cause of death wasn't listed as boils on the neck, but gastric ulcers, something Franklin Andrews had dealt with as a younger man. Gastric ulcers are open sores in the stomach lining, and they can create symptoms similar to those of arsenic poisoning. 
Excluding some of arsenic's more severe consequences, their presenting symptoms are similar to how ulcers manifest with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and even generalized fatigue. Someone with gastric ulcers would certainly be more vulnerable to arsenic poisoning because of their compromised stomach lining, which otherwise acts as a protective digestive barrier to whatever gets delivered. The ulcer wounds in this protective lining would ultimately allow for a more immediate and intensified delivery of the arsenic into the system, which would increase its toxicity and hasten its destructive consequences. In relation to our story, ulcers can seemingly manifest suddenly, but they usually aren't deadly. Immediately, Nellie was suspicious. Her concern only grew as she leafed through Franklin's things. Among his belongings, Nellie found a desperate letter Amy had written to Franklin seeking a sizable loan. Confused, she confronted Amy, who only denied it, until Nellie held up a hard copy of the letter. Amy claimed she'd entirely forgotten penning it. Her cavalier attitude disturbed Nellie. The death from ulcers, the strange request for a loan, nothing was adding up. She was convinced that Amy Archer Gilligan was somehow involved in Franklin's death. A few days after Franklin's funeral in June 1914, Nellie brought her qualms to Clifton Sherman, editor of the Hartford Courant, laying out her story for him. It was the smartest route she could have taken. Clifton and his team had already been digging into the Archer home for months. This new lead could speed their investigations along. So Clifton sent his star reporter, Robert Thayer, to question Amy. It wasn't hard for Thayer to secure an interview. He introduced himself as a reporter looking to do a story on the business, and Amy was quick to take the bait. After all, a little publicity might help her reel in more clients. Amy presented herself as a savior who truly cared for her residents. She spoke about how negligent old folks' families could be and claimed she would often lower the rates for struggling clients, as if money was the least of her concerns. But when Thea asked about Franklin Andrews, her tone changed. So my neighbors have been talking again, Amy said. She seemed disappointed in Thea for even asking about the matter, but she reeled off the basic facts of Franklin's passing, stomach pain in the night, the visit from Dr. King, and the unexpectedly sudden death. She then swept the topic under the rug completely, resuming her cheery tone as she finished the tour. Thea couldn't help but notice the odd conversational shift. Why would a woman who genuinely cared for her residents minimize the tragedy of a death unless she had something to hide? Eager for more information, Thea turned to Dr. King. The doctor was even less obliging than Amy. Dr. King felt Thea's inquisition undermined his medical expertise. He'd already made up his mind, and he told Thea as much. Franklin had severely overtaxed his stomach that night, which caused a violent recurrence and put too great a strain on his heart. In short, 
Dr. King claimed that Franklin Andrews had overeaten. Overeating can definitely worsen the symptoms caused by gastric ulcers, but Dr. King's theory connecting this to Franklin's death is a bit odd. Typically, when someone overeats, the stomach distends and they can get a stomach ache, feel nauseous, and may eventually throw up. When food enters the gut, the body diverts its blood supply to the stomach and away from other organs and muscle tissue to help with digestion. The larger the meal, the more blood goes to the stomach, which is why overeating usually makes people feel tired and lethargic. Because blood gets largely displaced from vital organs during heavy digestion, an overly indulgent meal could put strain on a compromised heart by depriving it of normal blood flow. Regardless, the dangerous level of overeating being described here is difficult to achieve, especially by accident. While we can't say with certainty that the doctor was wrong, it's important to note that none of the residents made note of Franklin eating huge quantities of food. This was the first time anyone had claimed that Franklin had overeaten. Dr. King's conclusion seemed random to Thayer, so he resorted to asking the question that plagued him most. Could Franklin have been poisoned? Dr. King dismissed the suggestion outright. He would have noticed the symptoms. But Thayer remained unconvinced. When he talked it over with his editor, the two decided the circumstantial evidence was enough to bring the case to authorities. They approached the Connecticut State Police Superintendent and the state's attorney. As the reporters laid out the facts, the other two men could only listen in shock. One went so far as to say, quote, It's too fantastic to believe. That it was. But the journalists would have to sit on their story for now. If they moved too soon, the police would be forced to arrest Amy without sufficient evidence. She might even run. Ultimately, they opted for the lesser of two evils. Temporary silence. To speed matters along, the police knew they would need a direct line of sight into the home, some way to collect information on Amy's doings without arousing her suspicions. Enter 38-year-old Zola Bennett. To the outside world, she was just the secretary to a high-ranking police officer. In reality, she was a private detective in her own right. She'd used her skills as an investigator to crack kidnapping and arson cases. Now, she disguised herself as a wealthy, friendless widow and admitted herself to the Archer home. Amy didn't seem to mind that Zola was only 38. Money was money after all, and the rat was in. Amy was evidently oblivious perhaps because she remained focused on the Gaudis, who'd finally moved in to Franklin Andrews' old room. Like most residents, their first several months were free of trouble as they settled into the comforts of the Archer home. But Amy had her eye on 71-year-old Alice Gaudi. The elderly woman was having regular conversations with one of her town friends, something Amy didn't take well. By November, Alice began complaining of stomach aches, 
and a burning sensation in her throat, much like the victims before her. But this time, the suffering wasn't out of sight. Detective Zola Bennett would see it all. Coming up, Amy's past catches up to her. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. At the end of 1914, 46-year-old Amy Archer Gilligan had poisoned dozens of the residents at the elder care home, all so she could cash out on their lifetime care payments. The latest victim was 71-year-old Alice Gowdy. Alice had been at the Archer home for less than six months when she suddenly fell ill with vomiting and diarrhea on Thanksgiving Day, no less. As other residents likely enjoyed a holiday feast, Alice sought Amy's help. Amy had little interest in supplying it. So Alice contacted her personal family physician, Dr. Emma Thompson, who set out immediately to examine her patient. Dr. Thompson's prompt diagnosis was cholera morbus, a condition Alice had struggled with previously. Like gastric ulcers, cholera morbus, or gastroenteritis as it's called today, could very easily share some symptoms of arsenic poisoning. This is a gut infection that's usually viral or bacterial, and some of its presentations overlap with arsenic toxicity and includes abdominal pain, diarrhea, vomiting, and muscular fatigue. Like arsenic intoxication, treatment for gastroenteritis entails rehydration with fluids and nutritional supplementation, and in severe cases with IV therapy. Going on such limited information, Dr. Thompson's diagnosis made sense. Dr. Thompson gave Alice pills for the nausea and ordered her not to eat any food, only liquids. She stayed by her patient's bedside late into the night, unknowingly protecting Alice from Amy's clutches. By the early morning, Alice seemed to be recovering rather well. So Dr. Thompson returned to Hartford, leaving her patient under Amy's dangerous watch. It's likely that Amy resumed poisoning Alice right away. 
Around a week later, on December 3rd, Amy called Dr. Thompson with terrible news. Alice was on the very edge of death. Dr. Thompson rushed over, but there was little she could do. Just like Franklin Andrews, Alice had basically become unresponsive. Her pulse was nearly undetectable and her breathing was shallow. Desperate to alleviate any pain Alice might be feeling, Dr. Thompson prescribed a few morphine tablets and drove back to Hartford. She'd done all she could. By nightfall, Alice Gowdy was dead. As always, Amy sent the body straight to the undertaker. Not 24 hours passed before the body was embalmed and ready to be buried. Out of sight, out of mind. Luckily, Detective Zola Bennett had witnessed the whole thing unfold in an undercover guise as Amy's resident. She immediately reported the case to her superiors. Alice's physician, Dr. Thompson, also went to an official, noting that Alice's fingers and toes were cold and rigid, and the trajectory of her illness didn't check out. Reflecting further, Dr. Thompson concluded that Alice Gowdy had been poisoned. But she'd also been buried. Any real evidence was already deep underground. They were going to have to dig for it. When Alice was exhumed in 1916, the examiner, Dr. Wolfe, found lethal amounts of arsenic in her system. But this wasn't the smoking gun. There was always the chance the embalming fluids were responsible. At that time, they often contained arsenic. Since the embalming process is conducted through the bloodstream, the vascular system will be saturated with embalming chemicals. However, it's unlikely that these chemicals will end up in certain bodily tissues, such as the liver. In life, the liver processes foreign chemicals and toxins in the blood, including drugs and poisons like arsenic. As such, Alice's liver would have contained arsenic metabolites, which are the poison's metabolized byproducts. For investigators to get the clearest picture in a situation like this, they need to know exactly where the embalming fluids get dispersed throughout the body and what specific chemicals the fluids contain. So Dr. Wolf took tissue samples from her liver and ground them up into a paste. He then placed it into a small glass dish and added hydrochloric acid and water. Finally, after moving the concoction into a test tube, he heated it to a boil and added strips of copper. When he removed the copper from the solution, he noted a purplish-blue color. Metallic deposits of arsenic. Dr. Wolf had confirmed the presence of arsenic in Alice's liver where it wouldn't have appeared if she'd been embalmed with a solution containing arsenic. Then, another clue. When detectives went to Smith & Son's undertaking, where Alice had been embalmed, they learned that the facility regularly used Red Falcon embalming fluid, which contained no arsenic. This meant only one thing. 
the substance hadn't entered Alice's body through the embalming process, Alice Gowdy had been poisoned. Dark news in hand, investigators returned to Amy's local drugstore to see if the purchase records revealed anything else incriminating. And in fact, they did. The list of people who'd purchased arsenic lined up with the list of residents who died at the Archer home. It appeared that Amy would often send her victims to buy the poisons themselves under their own names. This likely kept the pharmacist in the dark about Amy's intentions since the copious amounts of poison weren't logged under her name. Meanwhile, Amy's residents had no idea that the kind errand they were running for their caretaker brought them one step closer to their grave. While Amy's operation was now clear and the poison in Alice's body did indicate foul play, the state wanted to build a bigger case. They could charge Amy with Alice's murder, but by this point, they suspected Amy had killed dozens of people. A premature court case wouldn't bring those victims justice. So throughout the spring and summer of 1916, officials also exhumed the bodies of Charles Smith, Michael Gilligan, and Franklin Andrews. When examining Franklin, Officials didn't even bring the body to a lab. They did the autopsy in a nearby tool shed under cover of night. Secrecy was key. If Amy discovered they were on her tail, she might lawyer up, or worse, destroy any evidence she might have inside the house. And on May 8, 1916, Hugh Alcorn, the state's attorney, issued Amy's arrest warrant. Her accused crimes? The murder of Franklin Andrews and four others. Though some accounts posit that she may have been responsible for the deaths of 64. That same day, police arrived at 47-year-old Amy's doorstep and searched the place. Carlin Gosley, who'd suspected Amy for years, was the only reporter allowed inside the home, which he soon referred to as a murder factory in his front-page headline for the Hartford Courant. As for Amy, she went quietly when they found her, still high on morphine. She allegedly popped a final pill before letting the police take her away. Though after the morphine wore off, Throughout the ensuing media scandal and court case, Amy denied the charges. But here and there, she let things slip. At one point after being taken into custody, she was even heard muttering, Oh dear, oh dear, why did I do it? The jury only deliberated for an afternoon before declaring Amy guilty. They sentenced her to death by hanging. As it had before, Amy's survival instinct drove her onward. She peeled her conviction, buoyed by a wave of public outrage at the notion of executing a woman. A slew of testimony from her family also helped. Amy garnered sympathy for her difficult upbringing and family history of mental illness. In 1919, after her original conviction was thrown out, Amy sat through a second trial, which found her guilty of second-degree murder. Her sentence was reduced from death 
to life in prison. But she managed to escape this too. In 1924, 56-year-old Amy stopped answering questions from doctors, acting as if she didn't understand what they were saying. Once she underwent a mental evaluation, she was placed permanently at Middletown's Connecticut Valley Hospital. Here she stayed until her death in April 1962. She lived long enough to see her crimes permanently alter the field of elder care. Most notably, the Connecticut State Legislature passed a bill imposing strict regulations on nursing homes, requiring a report of deaths every year. They also imposed a formalized process for lodging complaints against boarding houses for the elderly. Aside from Amy's monstrous deeds, her career as a killer exposed many deep flaws that plagued the elderly care system during the early 1900s. The reforms she inspired were crucial despite the tragedy of their history. Unfortunately, elder abuse within care settings still happens, and it's really a shame because this population is so vulnerable for a wide variety of reasons. Working primarily as a family doctor, I'm always shocked and disturbed when I hear about this kind of maltreatment. I've actually seen this sort of cruelty firsthand when dealing with patients in my own practice, and it's truly inexcusable. It's always something that needs to be called out and checked whenever it's noticed. But the Archer home legacy doesn't end with its influence on U.S. law and medical centers. Amy's story was adapted into a play and then a movie, Arsenic and Old Lace, starring Cary Grant, which was released in 1944. The uproaringly dark comedy tracked a pair of old ladies who murder the boarders in their nursing home. Though Hugh Alcorn, the state's attorney who had arrested and prosecuted Amy, didn't find it a laughing matter. For him, it was a tragedy for those who had trusted Amy to care for them, only to be betrayed so that she could survive. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Amy Archer Gilligan, among the many sources we used, we found The Devil's Rooming House by M. William Phelps extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Thomas Dolan-Gavitt, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 
It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this fascinating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This is an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so be sure to visit parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.